Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. This week, we are continuing our conversation with Norma Lewis, author of Michigan Scoundrels, Rogues, Rascals, and Rapscallions, published by the History Press. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to check it out. Thanks so much for listening. Let's dive back in. Norma, welcome back to the show. We are so glad to have you. Oh, and I'm so glad to be here. Really appreciate the time that you've taken for us uh, this week and and last week. I know last week we had to deal with a slightly more challenging case, one of the one of the harder cases in your book. But luckily today we can talk about somebody who's just a lot more entertaining. Right. You have a chapter in Michigan Scoundrels. And let me just say that our listeners who have any interest in misdeeds and rascals and rogues and ragamuffins, I mean, there are so (laughs) many in your book, and it is so much fun to read because you just get such such a a circus, you know, all the way through. But but of all the members of the circus, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I really do think that there there might be no better performer, no better act uh, in under the big top uh, here <laughs> than a guy named Silas Doty, who you. You title your chapter about him, The Stickiest Fingers in All of Michigan. And I dare say, (laughs) that might be an understatement. (laughs) So, So who on earth was Silas Doty? Silas Doty was born in Vermont. His family moved to Michigan when he was still a child, and he started his career in thievery when he was a child. We talk about whether villains are born or made. Well, he was definitely born. He was quite active at at age nine. Even before that, he was stealing his siblings' toys, and sometimes he would allow them to play with them. Sometimes he would make them pay rent to play with with their own toys. (laughs) No way. (laughs) Rent. He had to play or he had to pay a fee? Wait, what was this? <laughs> you have to wonder why his parents permitted that, but I have no idea. <laughs> I'm, I'm very concerned all of a sudden that our nine-year-old listeners out in Crime Capsule land are going to start getting ideas, you know, about their toys. <laughs> well, this was when he moved beyond toys and was stealing pelts from trap lines. That was kind of a thing that was done in the area where he lived, and he knew when they were checked and when they were emptied and he would go first and and steal not all but some of them and he'd leave some so nobody suspected that some had been stolen then he would sell the pelts so that was kind of enterprising for a kid that age so he had he had brothers and sisters he charged rent to play uh, with his toys which is genius and awful all at once um, <laughs> And <laughs> um, was there ever any indication in the sources that you read that um, that he was born into a family where uh, thievery and you know sort of little petty petty misdemeanors like like this? I mean, uh, was this common in his family, or was he actually born into a pretty decent family? Quite the opposite. He was the great grandson of one of the men who arrived on the Mayflower, <laughs> a man named. Edward Doty came to this country on the Mayflower. Whatever glory he gave the family name, uh, Silas eradicated it. You have an interesting detail in here, which is that, you know, we were talking last week about 
Andrew Kehoe and the tinkering and the working with machines and, you know, metal and that sort of thing. You, you have an interesting detail, which is a Silas, one of his first apprenticeships, which is, of course, common in those days, early 1800s, uh, young, young, young people would always, you know, apprentice to a master, was at a blacksmith shop. And the blacksmith uh, in those days, of course, would have been responsible for the production of keys. So, so Sile, as his nickname was, Sile learns very early on about the, just the pure mechanics of locks and keys and tumblers and cylinders and all of these different sort of uh, ways through doors that he, where he's not supposed to go. Oh, right. He actually made a lot of keys of different shapes and sizes and a lot of other tools that he used for the rest of his life. He knew what his career was going to be. Now, do you think it was that he didn't want to work, or is it that you think his definition of work did not exactly match, say, yours and mine? Oh, right. His life's work was being a thief and being the best thief he could be. That's it. That's, that's, that's his business card. That, exactly. That's just, that's all that we know about him. Okay. I said in the book that if there were a Nobel Prize for thievery, he would be the winner hands down. Yeah. Um, so give us some examples. What kinds of stuff was he, what, 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 what was he boosting or heisting or, you know, what was he taking? Well, horses were his favorite thing to steal, but actually anything, I say anything that wasn't nailed down, but with all the tools he made, being nailed down didn't necessarily stop him. So... He could liberate just about anything if he chose to. And it was a puzzle to him. It was a game, you know. Can I figure this out? And generally he could. Now, were these items that he would sell sell for profit on kind of like a, you know, a black market sort of thing? Or he would just fence them? Or or was it just he wanted to have them and that was it? (laughs) Right. He sold some of the things he stole, but he did it just because he enjoyed doing it. He couldn't help himself. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, philosophers who debate the nature of free will might uh, might have had some questions for him. <laughs> this is true <laughs> about, about whether he whether he whether he could or couldn't. You know, <laughs> um, it certainly sounds like he had developed quite a set of skills which were uh, amenable to the liberation of unused artifacts. If he saw it and he could take it, he did. <laughs> Some folks who end up in this line of work, we've had uh, different cases over the years with with crime capsule guests where you're part of a gang, you're part of an outfit, you know, you're part of a, I'm thinking of the Austin, Texas safe cracking gang from the 1960s. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm wondering, was he... Was he part of like a little sort of conclave of folks who were doing this or or was he a lone wolf? Well, both. He goes down in history as being someone who put together a lot of gangs, but it's the things he did all by himself that he's remembered for that took the most ingenuity. Okay. Uh, Can you give us another example? Well, he started out, you know, in childhood and then he had to leave home at about age 20 because there was kind of a crime wave going on in the area where he lived, and his father was beginning to get suspicious, so he left home at 20, and his plan was to go to Buffalo, New York, and become a sailor. But when he got to Buffalo, he saw so many opportunities to steal things that, you know, why bother? That kept him busy for quite a while. And then he did go on to become a sailor, and that was frustrating, too, because he didn't stay in one place long enough to fully explore all the 
thieving possibilities. Sure. I mean, what, what I can imagine that must have been very distressing for him to, you know, to realize there are all these houses that I have not yet burgled, you know, <laughs> woe is me. Now I have to leave. Terrible. Once he found a boat, a, a cargo boat, all loaded up. And so he stole it and went on down whatever waterway that was and just sold everything along the way. And then he sunk the boat. Well, that's not half bad of an idea, I suppose. I mean, one of the rules is destroy the evidence, right? Right. But horses were his primary thing, what he enjoyed most. And one of the funnier examples was there was a posse and a sheriff kind of hot on his heels, and he was riding a stolen horse. So he stopped at a farm, and he told the farmer that he was a, a sheriff trying to pursue a horse thief, and could he rest his horse there for a little while? So the farmer says, oh, sure. <laughs> he put the horse in the stable and invited Sile in for lunch. And so Sile left a little while later. After he watched the posse go by, he left. And taking <laughs> with him a clock he'd seen on the wall while he was dining. So he never missed an opportunity. Good Lord. I mean, that's like how many crimes at once are you committing in that moment? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if impersonating law enforcement, thievery, horse, horse larceny. I mean, you know, it's oh, you just name it, he did them it. up. <laughs> and enjoyed yeah. doing it. That was what, what struck me about him was how much fun he got out of it. Yeah, you know, now, Norma, I have to ask you about something because you have a line in your book. You have a line in this particular chapter where I believe it is a four-word sentence. And I just had to ask you, you write uh, in a declarative uh, tone that, quote, Stealing horses is fun, unquote. <laughs> and I was just going to ask you, now, is this something that you have any personal knowledge of? Oh, no. <laughs> I've hardly ever even ridden a horse. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, that's exactly the kind of thing a thief would say. You realize that, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I was kind of in his head when I said that. Yeah, I was, uh, I was, I was wondering, you know, I was, uh, I was looking at all those dappled mares in the, you know, through, through the, uh, in the backyard and just wondering, who did this really belong to, Norma? You're not just holding on to those for somebody, are you? <laughs> <laughs> No, oh, it was it was really something. I mean, so so Silas, I'm going to exaggerate a little bit, but not a whole lot. He basically steals his way across the country, right? <laughs> he sort of once he starts traveling. I, I mean, that's how he finances his journey. Oh, right. It's kind of understatement because he also stole his way across Britain and into Scotland for a while and Mexico. International thief then. Absolutely. Right. And proud of it. There's an obvious question which we have to ask sort of like right now before we get any further into his story, which is that did nobody know? <laughs> was there was nobody after this guy? You know, it's like he walks through a town and mysteriously everybody's belongings seem to disappear, you know, from their pockets and their saddlebags. You know, every he leaves a trail of empty, uh, you know, wallets, you know, everywhere he walks. Oh, he was arrested a few times and he actually went to okay. prison a few times, but he got good at escaping. Another skill set. He, he was he was a locksmith. I mean, he was a he'd learned how to pick locks. He'd learned how to make locks. I mean, and people kind of liked him, so they didn't necessarily search him when they put him in jail, and so he would have the means in his pocket to get out. <laughs> Good heavens! Um, do you can, can you tell us kind of where was he arrested in Buffalo? Was he arrested in Michigan? Was he arrested? I mean, where where was he doing time? Well, he was in the Jackson prison in Michigan a few times. Once he got off early for good behavior, 
So he wasn't a bad guy. He just liked to steal. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Normally those two concepts might not sit so well together. But when you read this chapter about him, you know, it actually makes perfect sense. There's there's hardly ever any indication in your account that he was malicious about it, you know, and he, he wasn't doing this to sort of deliberately to impoverish somebody. It's no, just not that at all. if he saw something, he, he took it. If he saw something and he liked it, he, he took it faster. Yeah. Right. It was just a challenge to him, a game. But he did kill at least one person. Oh, go on. What happened? He had a farm. He got married and had a few kids and had a farm, but he didn't want to do the farming. He was more into stealing than hard manual labor, so he hired this guy to work the farm for him. And unfortunately, the guy realized what he was really doing and was stupid enough to tell him that he was on to him and was going to report him to the authorities. And then he turned his back on him, so the sharpest knife in the drawer. When he turned his back, you know, Sile beamed him with a hickory stick and tossed him in, a, in the woods with the body surfaced and he was arrested. But then he managed to escape before he ever served his time. And then he got lucky because the country went to war with Mexico over getting control of Texas and he had to get out of jail free. Anyone who served admirably would be forgiven of any crimes committed prior to the war. So he was happy to serve in the war and just gave him a chance to steal in Mexico, too. He'd march with his troop all day, disguise himself as a Mexican at night, and go out stealing things, and then sell the things he stole to his fellow American officers. So slow down for a second there, because okay. there's a lot that just happened. No, that's just a very <laughs> dense sequence of, of events, and I think we just <laughs> need to unpack it a little, because because he's working on a farm, within, with, you know, within the span of three paragraphs, he's working on a farm, he kills a guy, maybe he means to, maybe he doesn't, but he kills the guy, disposes of the body, body comes back, he gets thrown in jail. He gets out of jail before he, 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 he breaks loose before he can do his time. The country is at war. He gets a get-out-of-jail-free card regardless because if he does his military service, and this is the Mexican-American War of the 1840s we're talking about, okay, if he serves honorably, he doesn't have to, he's pardoned for his crimes, including murder, okay, like... And then he goes and he starts stealing during the war. So <laughs> that's it. You got it. That's our boy. <laughs> and I understand that there was he 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 managed to take his thievery and his um, you know purloined goods all the way up to the very highest levels of the the army command. Is that right? I mean, he was able even to to bring a stolen horse to the general in charge of the entire campaign? He was under the command of one general and stole a horse and rode the horse to where General Winfield Scott was camped and he gave General Scott the horse, who was so grateful to get it, never suspected it was stolen. So he gave Sile the job of taking care of the horse, which was a pretty easy job, and to just work as an occasional messenger. This guy knew how to play the game from every single seat at the table, didn't he? Oh, he did. He was very good at what he did. What do you do with a guy like Silas Doty? He was on 
very good terms with a lot of his jailers. He was he had good behavior. He, people liked him. He could charm them and so forth. As his skills and his reputation grew together, did anyone ever consider trying to hire him? And I mean, I mean that in the sense of, you know, today we talk a lot about um, in the the uh, digital world, you know, the white hat hackers, right? It's like the, the the folks who use their hacking skills to help others, to find the weaknesses so that you can plug the weaknesses in a system. You, you know, it's the good guys, you know, right? They're, they're effectively the good guys. Did anyone in law enforcement, uh, you know, in Michigan or anywhere else ever think like, okay, this Silas Doty, we can either you know, work against him or we can work with him, right? Uh, let's get him on our side. <laughs> as far as I know, that never happened, but it would have been a good opportunity. It made me wonder, you know, it really made me wonder because, you know, it sounds like it, it, at least in, in some ways he might have been persuadable, right? <laughs> I mean, he wasn't, he was not psychopathic the oh, way no. Andrew Kehoe, Kehoe was last week, right? He was a nice guy. He just has sticky fingers. Nobody's perfect. And and the occasional heavy hickory stick, which, you know. Um, well, that, the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which we can't. Can't overlook that. Can't really overlook that. No. Um, but, you know, it, it, it sounded like he was, if he was in it for the challenge. I just wondered as I was reading your account, Norma, you know, whether anyone in law enforcement recognized that and just said, let's recruit this guy, you know, rather than leave him to his own devices. No, I doubt it, because back then, everybody didn't know everything. There was no internet, so he would go from place to place, and his reputation wasn't known. Sure, and and I mean, you, you can also walk into a town and no one has ever seen you before and right. you can be anybody that you want to be. Yeah, of course. Be hard course. to do today. A little harder. A little harder for sure. Um, He'd probably find a way. I have no doubt. <laughs> I have no doubt whatsoever. Um, now, let me ask you, you, you write that Silas, he has these incredible escapades in the 1840s. You know, he, he goes to war, he steals the horses, he comes home and he just keeps stealing um and you know those are kind of the that's kind of the apex of his career as as far as far as the drama and the adventure goes but you write that he kept stealing all the way into his his late 70s yeah <laughs> did the items that he stole or the nature of his heists change as he got older I don't know. Some said he was like a Robin Hood, that he would steal from the rich and give to the poor. And in a few instances, he did that. He would ride through a town and see that the people were really in need, and he would go get what they needed and bring it back to them. But that wasn't really what what motivated him. What motivated him was just loving what he was doing. Perverted as that sounds. No, sure. And of course, you know, my grandfather and everybody's grandfather in this country, you know, are known is known for saying, you know, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. That statement <laughs> has a particular resonance when it comes to Silas Doty. That's for sure. Just going to put that out there. Obviously, once you get a, a man in his 40s in a wartime setting is going to have different sort of you know, physical requirements and capacities than, you know, someone who is maybe, you know, a couple of decades older. And as well, I'm thinking of my own dad in, in his later years, you know, he just lost a little bit of that physical dexterity, especially with his fingers, you know, as he got older and had a little nerve damage. And that sort of thing can happen with age and so forth. And it just made me wonder with Silas, you know, as he got older, since he continued to steal, you know, was there a 
was there any change in the kind of the kinds of things that he was trying to trying to lift, you know, or 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 boost just out of pure necessity? You know, just curious, <laughs> kind of. Oh, you know, yeah. I really don't know. I think if he saw it, he would take it. If he, you know, if he were physically able. <laughs> As a rule, you know, don't just don't leave anything. Like if you're going to talk to Silas Doty, make sure it's in a either in a wide open field. <laughs> or in a in, in a in a room that is a plain gray box because he'll steal the chair you're sitting on, you right? Know? And make sure the box is too heavy to pick up, or else you'll take that. Near the end of your account of Silas Doty, you have this kind of interesting addendum, or or kind of you know one of the questions that we always ask when we do research into crime history, of course, is sources, and it turns out that Silas wrote a book of course there's always a book right i mean we've had it, it just there's always a book he writes this autobiography tell us about his manuscript this this account of his own life well he was bragging about what he did it wasn't any remorse or anything like that it was just braggadocio you know look at me i did all this i stole all these things i'm better than anybody now where where did you find this book his family tried to prevent it from being published, but they were unsuccessful. It was published four years after his death. I've not seen the book. I just read about, I wrote about the book because I, because I read about the book. It wasn't available anywhere I looked. Gotcha. And I was going to ask you whether there were uh, any copies in the Grand Rapids, you know, library or no. Lansing or Michigan State or anywhere. No, I would love to have read it because he was, it was clearly bragging about what he did. We were talking last week about uh, the Library of Congress and their indexing services. And of course, by law, any book published in the United States is required to have one copy sent for deposition into the Library of Congress Permanent National Archives, right? Is it possible that Silas Doty, his book might be there? And uh, if not, is it because that he stole it? <laughs> Uh, I don't know if it's there or not, but if he could have stolen it, he would have. I'm not sure the Library of Congress existed at the time he was stealing. <laughs> yeah, and it's probably a good thing that, to the best of our knowledge, he never made it to Washington, D.C., because he might have stolen the you know, the United States Capitol while he was out at uh, Oh, he might have. But, yeah, yeah, that's the Declaration of Independence, all that. <laughs> he did steal a slave once. He was traveling through Kentucky, and he saw the slave just standing there minding his own business. So he, he took him to Ohio and then released him. Didn't have anything to do with wanting him to, to, to be in a free state or anything like that. He just had never stolen a person before. And there he was, right for the taking. So human trafficking was his uh, was the <laughs> final frontier for Silas Doty, right. is what you're saying. <laughs> his mind didn't work like yours and mine. I think that is safe to say. Um, but, you know, it, he's the kind of guy that you definitely uh, would want to at least meet once, uh, but then check your pockets and keep right. a safe distance, you know, <laughs> afterwards. But, um, yeah. no, it, it really is. We, we, can, we can make fun of him and we can kind of give him a little bit of grief here. But, but honestly, Norma, you know, it, it really is a very compelling story if you think about it. I mean, this guy's entire life was devoted to to thievery and right. it, 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 it 
It does suggest, I mean, of course, like, you know, in, in seriousness, it does suggest that there must have been some kind of pathology, right, in his mind to where he just did not recognize, you know, the, the boundaries of conventional ownership of any object, right? I mean, it just, there's, there was a screw loose, right, somewhere. Yeah, that sounds very true. I'm sure you're right. But back in his day, they didn't have names for conditions like that. Yeah, uh, uh, right. Kleptomania would have just been a word. I mean, it, it, or it just would have been um, maybe considered a, a, an expression of the vilest sin or something like that. I mean, who knows what they would have called it. But I, I, I just couldn't help but wonder, you know, here you have a guy who's entire. it's not just his his career, it is his entire life is devoted to taking things that don't belong to him. And that is, that's just really remarkable. And, you know, our, our listeners out there, we've only scratched the surface of Silas's story, you know, here today, but, you know, our listeners who uh, would like to, to dive a little deeper and learn a little bit more about some of the things he got up to, they absolutely uh, should check out uh, your book, Michigan scoundrels. And if anybody out there in TV land uh, knows of or has ever come across a copy of his autobiography, by all means, please reach out. (laughs) Please, (laughs) please reach out because the world is waiting. The world is eagerly waiting, you know, to get this book back in circulation. Even if every bit of it is a, is an outright outrageous lie, it'd still be fun to read. But no, this is, this is totally, totally fascinating. And thank you for, for sharing some of his story with us. Um, Norma, you said last week that this was your 20th book uh, working with History Press and and children's books, and this is your twentieth uh, overall volume. What's next for you? What is going to be book number twenty one, <laughs> which might as well just be twenty thousand, as far as I'm concerned? Well, I have a couple of children's books in the works, and I'd like to do something kind of off the wall, kind of a eating your way around Lake Michigan. But they're just ideas at the moment. At some point, I should probably think about retiring. Uh, well, uh, Silas didn't, so... Uh, <laughs> That's know. true. Uh, a role model. You know, absolutely. Uh, I mean, all the way all the way till the end, he was still at it. But, you know, <laughs> well, we certainly, your, your devoted readers certainly hope you do not retire anytime soon. In the meantime, <laughs> if folks do want to pick up a copy of Michigan Scoundrels or any of your other books... Where where can folks find you? What is the best place for them to go and grab a title? Well, Barnes & Noble care, in Michigan carries most of the Michigan books, and if they don't actually have them in stock, they could easily get them. So that would be the easiest okay. place to find them. But there are also a lot of independent bookstores in my area that have them because I'm local and they carry local books, but... Like the Bookman here in Grand Haven, where I live, Schuler's in Grand Rapids and Lansing, the Epilogue Bookstore in Rockford, Michigan. Well, those are all wonderful uh, outlets for sure. And we here on Crime Capsule, we love to support our independent booksellers for sure. By all means, anybody, any interested Michiganders who are out there, uh, please chase these up and um, you'll find a lot more uh, than than you bargained for. And um, just these two cases alone that we have looked at in Michigan, Michigan Scoundrels are really are the tip of the iceberg, and there are so many more colorful characters to to hang out with uh, in this particular volume. Norma, this has been 
such a pleasure. We really appreciate your taking the time for us uh, this this week and last week. And you know, best of luck to uh, everything uh, to for everything that you're doing. And I certainly hope that if you meet any descendants of Silas Doty anywhere around, um, that you that you escape with your your possessions intact. <laughs> um, yeah, I like Silas. That may sound strange, but but I liked him. I wrote about so many heavy characters before him in that book that he was a, a breath of fresh air. Oh, absolutely. And there are far more where that came from, that's <laughs> for sure. Well, we sure do appreciate your, your joining us and uh, all the best to you for everything that's coming up next. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Norma Lewis, author of Michigan Scoundrels, Rogues, Rascals, and Rapscallions, published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit ArcadiaPublishing.com or your local independent bookstore. We'll be back next week for our final episode in this season of Crime Capsule with a special guest, Dr. Jamie Goodall, author, researcher, historian of pirates, and, wait for it, a pirate herself. We're ending this season with a bang, so join us. See you then. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael DeLoya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.